Every solution to every problem is simple. It's the distance between the two where the mystery lies. Derek Landy. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, a Casper Highway early one Sunday morning, the scene of a terrible tragedy when a young life was cut far too short. Little did anyone know then how long answers would be in coming, and in the end, with the mystery solved, was justice really served? To this day, nobody knows how Lynn Doe got to Wyoming, but we now know that she was there, walking alone in the dark off an Interstate 25 exit ramp in the first part of November 2nd, 1980. It was dark and it was cold. The sun wasn't up yet at 5 a.m. and the southwesterly winds brought the temperatures in Casper to well below freezing. Lynn must have been wondering, as she wandered alone aside the highway in a state she'd never been to before, and now a place she couldn't wait to leave. How exactly had she arrived in this situation? How quickly had everything gone so wrong? Just days ago, she'd left her home in Iowa on one of the most exciting trips of her lifetime. Lynn needed a turning of the page, a fresh start, a new chapter, and this trip was going to begin that for the rest of Lynn's life. She'd been looking forward to this trip with excitement for weeks. And for someone Lynn's age, not even 21 years old yet, The open road can seem like the answer to a lot of problems. It winds in front of you, as does the rest of your life. And as with your life, you know the road comes to an end eventually, and you've been taught there are perils to avoid along the way. But not one of us starts down the road thinking too much about those things, because the road is what's going to take us where we need to go. It's where we're supposed to be. The journey on it is what we're called to. For 20-year-old Lynn Doe, as she would come to be known after her body couldn't be identified, few things in her young life to that point represented what she hoped for with her fresh start in her future than the open road she'd take on that trip west to Washington State to see one of her sisters. And the trip had started out with all the promised excitement she'd been anticipating. Money in her pockets and gas in her tank, Lynn left Iowa with a warm excitement in her heart. But the journey was long, and after a few hours on the road, the shine had worn off, and the monotony and the reality of such a journey began to set in for Lynn. Lynn was traveling alone to a place she'd never been to before, where she'd meet people she wouldn't otherwise cross paths with. Bad people, some of them. We are all at any time just a short series of unfortunate events away from the worst imaginable situation. It happens quickly, and it can happen to any of us at any time. For Lynn, on this trip, things started to go bad in Colorado. That's where Lynn's car broke down. And we'll never know exactly what happened next, how Lynn ended up walking cold and alone in the pre-dawn darkness of a November morning in Casper, 300 miles away from her car, wondering as she walked how had it all gone so wrong so quickly. 
She needed a ride. She needed food. She needed help. And then, in an instant, the pre-dawn darkness went black. Sherry awoke with a headache and a simultaneous desire for both copious amounts of water and maybe something else, something stronger, to drink, to take the edge off. She'd passed out on her friend's couch, just... Sherry fumbled with her watch, and not finding it on her wrist, she looked haphazardly across the apartment for something to give her what time it was. It was still dark, and she came around to slowly remembering who she was and where she was. The party had gone on until at least two o'clock in the morning, as best she could guess, but now most of the people from the party were gone. She was alone in the well, except she now saw for one other person a young man. She vaguely remembered meeting for the first time last night, laying face down in the corner of the room with a blanket draped over half of him, and a pillow from the couch resting on top of his head. Sherry shook her head and then sat up a little too quickly, and immediately let her head fall back onto the couch. It was going to be a long Sunday. Outside the window, the sky appeared pitch black beyond the fluorescent lights of the parking lot. Sherry felt as though she'd been asleep for maybe a couple hours. It wasn't dawn yet, but it must be close. Maybe she'd hit it a little too hard this time. She could still feel the drunk in her oncoming hangover. But at 21 years old, in the middle of winter, in the middle of Wyoming, Sherry knew she wouldn't be the only one of her friends waking up like this this morning. Far from it. Forcing herself vertical, Sherry steadied herself on the coffee table to stand and queasily looked around the room for her purse. Finding it, she was gratified to discover that her keys and her wallet were still inside of it where she'd left them. Looking around the room again for some water or anything else to drink and finding nothing, Sherry decided it was time to go. She stumbled to the door, managing to hit her forehead with it as she opened it, and squinted into the bright lights of the parking lot. Sherry walked zigzag toward her truck. It never crossed her mind she shouldn't yet drive. On just pure instinct, Sherry slammed on the brakes and jerked the steering wheel in the opposite direction. It's the only reason the truck didn't flip over entirely. She'd only seen the woman for a moment. She was breathing heavily and she could smell the vodka on her breath from the night before. And that is what caused the panic of all things in that moment. That is what made it real. The feeling was slow, like the melting of an ice cream cone cascading from the very top of her head all the way down the rest of her body. It was at first a warm tingling, but also terrible feeling that seconds later turned very cold, like her own blood had turned to ice water. She clutched the wheel with both hands, panting feverishly. This was not happening. The truck had not flipped over, and now it was resting across the roadway beside the interstate, just waiting for its driver. Sherry opened the door and got outside. She walked around the front of the truck, noticing first the damage to the right side, and Sherry was stunned by it. The right front of the pickup truck looked like she'd run into a concrete slab with it. Then she looked with terrified anticipation for what she already knew she had hit, but she had to see it. She could see it was a woman who looked something like herself, and for a surreal moment, Sherry thought she recognized the girl from the party the night before at the apartment, she saw the hair and the colorful clothes, and then panic. She did not go for help. Sherry ran back to her truck and tore off down the interstate. 
After a few minutes, Sherry realized she wasn't even conscious of where she was or what she was doing, aside from the fact that she knew she was driving way too fast on Interstate 25. She still breathed heavily, and she was waiting for her head to clear. But it wasn't. It wouldn't. This wasn't real. This was a movie. This was a terrible dream, a nightmare. She wasn't thinking about what to do next, and she kept waiting for that to come, but it never did. Nothing came to her. She wasn't thinking about anything, which angered her. It was as though her brain refused to work. And soon, as though the truck were driving itself, she found herself pulling off the interstate and parking the truck along the side of the road. Sherry put the truck in park and cried. Loudly and into both hands, she cried in some new way she'd never cried before. And when the tears were gone, Sherry turned her truck around and started driving back toward the woman she'd left for dead on the side of the highway. At this hour on a Sunday morning, traffic was very light, but some of the few passing motorists that were driving by onto the highway had noticed the growing commotion and slowed to almost a stop to see what all the fuss and flashing lights were about on the side of the exit ramp. The Wyoming State Patrolman would gently wave them on. The drivers would, of course, see his command and nod promptly, but they would always take one more last look before they drove away, he noticed. This looked to the trooper like a straightforward hit and run, but there was a procedure to follow. He'd already called the Casper Police Department. They'd probably want to send a detective first thing, so... The thing for him to do now was to secure the scene, which meant closing the highway on-ramp altogether. Church traffic would be a little detoured this morning, he thought. He'd been on the scene for about 20 minutes and had just finished constructing the barricades blocking the on-ramp when a pickup truck, which had exited the highway traveling the other direction on I-25, stopped on the other side of the frontage road, just beyond the overpass. And the trooper knew immediately it was for him. The truck was waiting for him. The driver was watching him. And then he noted the damage to the vehicle. Part of the front had been involved in a collision, and a significant one. And he noticed a faint wisp of smoke emanating from somewhere under the hood. The trooper started toward the truck, half expecting its tires to peel off onto the road as it drove away. And the trooper also realized in this moment he was not as close to his own patrol vehicle as he should be. It was still parked on the on-ramp beyond the barricade. If the driver did take off, there was a decent chance it could reach a residential side street and disappear before he'd have a chance to catch up. But the truck didn't move. It sat there, idle, seeming to stare at him as he approached. The officer reached behind his hip and placed his right hand over his service weapon, unbuttoning its holster while simultaneously reaching for his flashlight with his left hand, the driver's side window cranked down at that very moment, revealing a distraught young woman. What happened here? The woman asked. The question was asked in a way that made it seem to the trooper like she already knew the answer. Her eyes were red and bloodshot. She'd obviously been recently crying and didn't seem to be totally coherent. Can I see your license, ma'am? The woman fumbled through her purse for just a few seconds too long before handing it over. The officer's light left the woman's swollen face. He read the license with it and quickly returned it to her drunken gaze. They both knew about the vodka by now. Have you had anything to drink recently, ma'am? Maybe last night? The woman didn't answer. Finally, after a silence, the woman in the truck asked, 
Is she okay? The trooper met her eyes and matter-of-factly just said no. She's not. Detective Gary Hazen of the Casper Police Department hates cold cases. Occasionally, when he's not busy with active investigations involving bank robberies and assaults and the occasional murder around Casper, he'll open up one of the department's cold case murder files in the hope that inside a few, maybe weeks, months, with another look at it, pair of fresh eyes, he'll be able to close the case and move on to the next one until there are no more cold case files left in the department. But Detective Hazen, at 39 years old, has become wise enough to know by now that that day will never come. But he is also just now hitting his professional peak. His ambition and his culminated investigative knowledge are at their apex in the fall of 1994, when he meets for the first time Lynn Doe. Lynn, to him, is an autopsy report and a case number, at least at first. From her file, Detective Hazen learns that Lynn was found dead from a hit-and-run on the Yellowstone exit of I-25, November 1980. That was 14 years before. She'd sustained massive injuries, and the driver responsible had actually returned to the scene. She was also a 21-year-old woman, and she had been arrested and charged with fleeing the scene of an accident, ultimately fined $200. The detective shakes his head at this. The driver had been drunk, she'd taken a life, and society's bill to pay for the crime was $200. But this was not Detective Hazen's purview, nor his task. The outcome of this event was known, and the perpetrator had been arrested. The victim was unknown. Lindo had never been identified. The detective saw in the file the woman carried no identification with her at the time of her death. She had no wallet, no purse, or other personal possessions aside from the clothes on her back of any kind. The only thing found on the dead woman on the side of the road was a note from the woman's father. It was addressed simply, Lynn. And so Detective Hazen knew the woman's name, at least her first name. And he had a new case. Who was Lynn Doe? Lynn Doe's father, back in Iowa, had assumed years ago that his daughter had committed suicide, and he'd always blamed himself for it. The suicide explanation took quite a few years to take hold with Lynn's father. It never really made sense to him entirely. Nothing about his daughter seemed to fit that she'd want to end her own life. She'd had her troubles, but who didn't at that age? And most importantly, she had her two children to think about. His daughter had left Iowa to Washington State to see her sister, and within a few days he'd been made aware that she had never gotten there. And Clark had never forgotten that feeling of helplessness as a father. The only thing he could do was pick up the phone and call the local police. Lynn was a 20-year-old woman, the local police said, and as an adult, she's free to do anything she pleases, including disappear. If she doesn't want to be found, there's not much we can do. Lynn's father, Clark, tried to explain to the local officers back in Iowa that his daughter wouldn't run away, and even if she did leave her two children and abandon them, she would at least have been in contact with someone that she knew, but nobody had heard from Lynn. And then... Lynn's father told the police something else, that Lynn had been traveling with a large amount of money, about $3,000. That's when the police took the report. Clark's heart has never been the same again after that, and weeks, months, years eventually went by. Panic turned into prolonged desperation for Lynn's father, Clark, and his wife, 
With few other options, in the age before the internet, the couple hired a private investigator to look into his daughter's mysterious disappearance, but to no avail. Clark eventually retired from his career, and sadly his wife became afflicted with cancer. It was terrible punctuation on the end of an already tragic family. After his daughter's disappearance, Lynn's mother, Clark's wife, died without knowing what had happened to her daughter. Then a strange thing happened. Something of Lynn's came in the mail. Lynn's purse, mailed back to the family from someone in Canada. There was nothing inside the purse and certainly no trace of the several thousand dollars she'd had with her when she'd left Iowa, but here was the first trace, the first remains of Lynn's that Clark and the family had found since she'd gone missing years before. Someone, it seemed, knew something about his daughter's fate and were perhaps remorseful enough to send this one possession, this clue, about where his daughter might be or what might have happened to her. Anonymously, from another country, but it was something. In his retirement, when he lived without his wife or his daughter, Clark had only time, and now Lynn's purse, to consider the mystery and the question that almost certainly now would never be answered. Not in his lifetime, anyway. Detective Hazen had received a few quizzical looks from his fellow detectives at the Casper PD when he decided to exhume Lindo's body so many years after it had been buried in a pauper's field outside of town. But he didn't have much else to go on. He'd already called the FBI asking how many women with the first name Lynn were missing and had yet to be found. And that list was actually shorter than he'd expected, but it was still way too long, containing nearly a hundred names. The body would give him whatever physical evidence it could all these years later, but the main reason for the exhumation was one key piece of evidence that Detective Hazen felt lay buried that he still needed. The woman's teeth. Hazen was hopeful that the woman's teeth were still in good enough shape to be used in comparison of dental records. As of this moment, there wasn't a different dental record to compare it to, but the hope was there might be someday. The exhumation gave the intrepid detective what he'd been looking for, not physical evidence that would help, not immediately anyway, but a good dental profile of Lindo and a DNA sample while he was at it. Now all he needed was something to compare them to. And it took six months to find the file. There's a missing persons report taken out by a man in Iowa whose daughter had gone missing on a cross-country road trip near the same time that Lynn Doe's body had been found, actually within a few days. Lynn Ray Knowles, the report said. Detective Hazen picked up the phone to make a call to Iowa that the man on the other end never thought would come. A few weeks later, Lynn Ray Knowles' father, Clark, was standing with a reporter and a local police officer inside a newspaper office waiting for a fax. The fax that was coming from Wyoming would contain two photographs. One would be the picture of the body that was found along I-25 in November of 1980. And the other would be a photograph of the handwritten note that was found with the woman. If the detective who had called from Wyoming was right, the photograph would be of Clark's daughter, Lynn. And the note would be the one that he would recognize as having written to her before she left 14 years earlier. The officer standing with him had tried to prepare Clark as best he could for what he might see in the image. It might be shocking and upsetting to him. It might bring up other emotions as well. 
As the officer talked, Clark noticed the newspaper reporter they were with, who was chatting nervously with his counterparts in the offices of the Casper Star Tribune in Wyoming, where the facts would be sent from. And suddenly, the reporter hung up the phone and interrupted the officer mid-sentence, Okay, here it comes. Thirty seconds later, the line rang, just twice, and the fax machine began printing. As Detective Hazen drives to Iowa, the reality hasn't sunk in yet. He's replaying the phone call in his mind. After he'd sent that fax, the callback had taken a little bit too long. He thought maybe there had been something wrong with the transmission, but then, after ten minutes, the phone at the reporter's desk rang, and he picked it up to recognize the voice on the other end. It was Clark Knowles, Lynn's father. I think your case is solved, Detective. He was old enough to be the detective's father, but the two had formed an unusual bond in the weeks since that phone call, and now the detective was driving Lynn Doe home. Finally identified after 14 years as Lynn Ray Knowles, her cremated remains were personally delivered to a grateful family back home in Iowa by the detective whose determination to solve the mystery had finally given closure to people who had long given up expecting any. It was only when he got to Iowa that Detective Hazen learned that Lynn had had two children, who for all those years had been left to wonder what had happened to their mother. Had she really abandoned them in 1980 when she'd left home after a divorce? At the memorial service after a brief ceremony, Lynn's family flocked to the detective. They thrust hugs upon him and handshakes and pats on the back and tearful thank yous. It was a powerful sight. A light of hope and answers and closure in the darkness that started before dawn on a frozen morning 14 years before. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. By the way, there's a little more to this story having to do with something you might be wondering about. A $200 fine for vehicular manslaughter that's a bit on the light side, most people would probably agree. And if you were wondering about that, you weren't alone. After the mystery of the case was solved and Lindo was identified, her family did pursue legal recourse through the civil courts in this matter. Ultimately, what happened was the family sued the driver for wrongful death, and a jury found that the drunk driver was 52% responsible for the accident, and Lynn Knowles, for I guess walking on the side of the highway, was actually 48% responsible, and so fault was assigned to the driver but no damages were awarded to the family. That decision was eventually appealed, but it was upheld by the state Supreme Court, so that's where that case uh, came to a close. One final note, just for the record, for the purposes of our retelling of this story, the name of the driver has been changed. Sherry is not her real name, and the only reason that was done is because I took some creative license with the telling of the story and her actions in the, in the hours leading up to the accident. There's no way of knowing through the court records what actually happened during that time. But the names and the locations and the outcomes of this case are public record. It's just through the telling of the story, I felt it appropriate to change her name because we had taken some of that creative license with her actions leading up to what is public record in the story. Sourcing for this episode comes from the Casper Star Tribune and reporting by Deidre Stolzel, as well as Joanne Barron and others. Want to thank Patreon supporters of this show. Please consider contributing at patreon.com slash Wyoming podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Wyoming podcast. Patreon supporters get early access to every episode, so there is no waiting. 
And Patreon supporters are owed a thanks by not just me, but all of us, as they allow this show to be presented commercial-free. This was the first episode of Season 2 of Dead and Gone in Wyoming, and I want to thank uh, everybody for listening and your support just downloading and listening to Dead and Gone in Wyoming. We are looking forward to another great season. For everyone at County10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.